Welcome to History Books and Wine, where three author friends talk about books and fun historical tidbits, all while raising a glass of vino. We're your hosts, Lori and Bailey, Eliza Knight, and Madeline Martin. So, pour a glass and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 39 of History Books and Wine. I'm your host this fortnight, Madeline Martin, a USA Today bestselling author of historical romance with page-turning action, tough heroines, and the men who are strong enough to love them. And yes, I did just say fortnight. Now that we're not doing weekly episodes, and since we love history, and also since I've had a lot of holiday cheer, it just seemed right to go with fortnight, as fortnight does mean every two weeks. No regrets. Tonight, I'm drinking a wine called Portillo, which is a wonderful Malbec. It's a red wine with deep purple tones that will most likely stain my tongue and teeth later. With a nose that is fruity with pronounced aromas of plums and blackberries, fresh on the palate due to its natural acidity. This great wine has a fruity finish and ripe brown tannins that will keep me young forever. Well balanced and bold with a distinctive varietal character. I don't really know what varietal character means, but it tastes pretty darn good and that's all that matters, especially during the holidays. I may actually have another bottle after this one. And that brings me to today's topic, Christmas. How are all of your holiday preparations coming along? I have to say, I'm really struggling this year, hence the wine. I ordered my cards, but they were late being delivered, so I'm even later getting them out than usual. I also have a confession to make. While researching for my blog, I paid my youngest to address and stamp all of my holiday cards. I did that one year with my oldest also a while back, like when she was probably maybe like... I don't know, seven years old. And she went through and she addressed all of, this is before I had all the little address labels. And she actually addressed my name misspelled wrong on all of them, which was really embarrassing. But I went on and sent it out anyways, because sometimes we just don't have time. And hopefully not that many people notice that I didn't know how to spell my name properly and that it was written in the handwriting of a seven-year-old. Do what you gotta do, right? Also, for the record, my youngest has already informed me that her rates will be going up next year for putting my cards together. Good help is so hard to find. And every year I also do a grandkid calendar for my parents. It's like one of their favorite presents ever. It's one of those that you just go on like uh, Snapfish or something and you take all the little pictures and I take a long time putting all the pictures together, even like pictures for people's birthdays and that kind of thing. Usually I have it done and it's already wrapped and everything by this point. Man, I did it the other night and by the skin of my teeth, I finished in time. In fact, I ordered it like 15 minutes before midnight. That was basically the last time to get expedited by before Christmas Eve. And I got it for like 15 minutes. (laughs) So I got it ordered. That's all that matters. I haven't started Christmas cookies yet. I have so much wrapping to do. I was actually paying my youngest also to wrap presents, but she decided she did not enjoy doing that anymore. And so after about eight presents, she stopped. And so I have a lot that I still have to wrap. Aside from a dry run with stockings before Christmas morning, I think I'm finally officially done. My parents are going to be here on Saturday, and my mom and I are going to make what we call kiflis, which are these little Polish pastry things that are shaped like a crescent moon. They're more like pastry than they are sugary, but the butter makes up for the absence of all that sugar, so it's not exactly healthy. But it's delicious because of all that butter. So what are some holiday traditions that you guys do? You can feel free to shoot us an email at historybooksandwine at gmail.com to share. And after all that talk about holiday prep and cookies, which admittedly has made me quite hungry, it's time to plunge headlong into my next favorite topic, history. 
So when was the first Christmas celebrated? On December 25th, 336, yes, in the 4th century in Rome, as part of Emperor Constantine's attempt to unite Christianity into one union. Christmas was used as a role in the Arian controversy, which was actually a Christian theological dispute between those who believed that God should be the Father versus those who believed that God should be the Son. But Christmas has roots that run even deeper into our history than 336. In Rome, prior to Christmas, another holiday was celebrated. It was called Saturnalia, which honored Saturn, the god of agriculture. The hedonistic celebration went on for a full month to celebrate the winter solstice with partying, drinking, dining, and all those other scandalous activities that go along with that kind of celebration. Around this time, there was another god being celebrated, Mithra, which was the god of the unconquerable sun who is said to have been born from a rock and whose birthday was on December 25th. It's said that the original purpose of celebrating Christmas on December 25th was an effort to absorb pagan followers into the Christian faith. Prior to the 4th century, Christmas was not a really big event for the Christians. In fact, at that time, Jesus' birth was not listed with the date in the Bible, and the main celebration that was usually recognized by Christians was actually Easter. Side note, if you look into the use of bunnies and eggs for Easter, they're actually all signs of rebirth and new life for the spring solstice, which is, once again, more pagan time to Christian celebrations. The original celebration of Christmas was actually called the Feast of the Nativity and spread to Egypt in the 5th century and to Europe by the 6th century. As an aside, I just have to say, how did we go from celebrating Saturnalia for a month to getting only one day off for Christmas in the 21st century? I'm just saying, we could use a little extra time for some hedonistic activities or just an extra bottle of wine. That said, here's a funny little fact. Once Christmas was in place, it was celebrated with the same vigor as Saturnalia and was come to be seen by many as a holiday of drunk and lewd behavior. How vulgar. In the Middle Ages, when the church ruled supreme with a tight grasp that dictated everything from what graced one's table to which days of the week a married couple might copulate, even Christmas was celebrated with abandon after one attended church, of course. Another funny fact, caroling was initially frowned upon as it was seen as vulgar, as it was considered one of the hedonistic activities from the Saturnalia celebrations. Hate is gonna hate, yo. Things got so crazy with these Christmas parties, a la the olden days, that in the 17th century, the Puritans decided to shut the party down. Yep, they legit canceled Christmas. Thank goodness those party poopers didn't keep the future down because it was graciously bestowed upon the masses once more when Charles II was restored to his throne. Even still, the Calvinists were displeased with bringing Christmas back. I'm sure their parties were kind of a downer. I'm just saying. However, America had their own Christmas struggles. The Pilgrims didn't celebrate Christmas, and it was banned in Boston for over 20 years. It finally became an official bank holiday in the UK in 1834, but it did not become an official holiday in America until 1870, almost 40 years later. And even though it was a bank holiday in the UK, that didn't mean that it was a post holiday as the mailman was still delivering door to door on Christmas Day until 1961. So that's a quick sum up of the history of Christmas. Now I'm going to share some other little things that you may have been wondering about. I know my interest was peaked as soon as I started digging into all this research and you know I just had to share. So we're gonna talk first about decorations. Nativity scenes were officially the thing in the 10th century, but why stop there? As an enormous advocate for all things glittery, sparkling, light up, flashing, blow up, celebrate loud, colorful, and proud, I'm all about glitzing up the decor in one's life in general. So first, like I said, they started off with the nativity scenes that were really big in the 10th century and even became bigger in the 12th century. And these nativity sets ended up being passed down from generation to generation as family heirlooms. Can you imagine how special that would be to have like an entire nativity set that had been passed down from like your great, great, great grandparents? That's 
So cool. I wish we would bring that tradition back. It's actually really neat. So later on came the Christmas tree, which was first used in celebration in Germany in the 16th century, and it was meant to be a symbol of the Star of David, which led the wise men to baby Jesus. Over time, this began to be decorated because everybody likes glitz and glamour and sparkles as much as I do. Specifically, this was decorated with three symbolic colors, red, green, and gold. Red was for the color of Christ's blood who died for our sins. Green was to symbolize eternal life, which is also why the evergreen tree is perfect for Christmas trees since it doesn't die even in the winter. And gold is to symbolize one of the gifts that the wise men brought for baby Jesus, as well as being part of royalty. So to this day, we still lean heavily on red, green, and gold, and now you know why. There's also a history for Christmas cards. Originally, they were made for their friends and family, by hand and they were swapped with each other. Later on, these were mass-produced for market consumption in 1843 by Sir Henry Cole with the original message reading the same as what you'll actually probably find on many cards today. Wishing you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I don't know about you, but I even write that on a bunch of my cards. So here we are almost 200 years later and still using the same greeting. I don't know if that means that his version is tried and true or if we need to just get more creative. I think it's really interesting too because when we did our, actually it was one of our very first podcast episodes where we were talking about Valentine's Day, it used to be very similar where people would hand make the cards and pass them to one another and then they ended up becoming part of the mass market consumption. Very interesting to see how it all works out. But nowadays we don't just stop at giving cards, we give gifts too. A lot of gifts to the tune of almost 350 pounds in the UK and $1,000 on average of spending on gifts per household in America. But where does the idea of gift giving come from? Well, it too actually has its roots embedded in Saturnalia. I'm telling you, that sounded like quite the party. Gifts were given among friends to celebrate Saturnalia during that month of celebration. But it also stems from the legend of St. Nicholas, which brings us to my next peak of curiosity, Santa. You guys, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this about a saint or not, but I'm shameless, so I'm just going to say it. Y'all, St. Nicholas was kind of a badass, I'm just saying. Born in the 3rd century in Greece, little is known about his life, although there are plenty of rumors to keep things juicy. He's said to have saved three women from being sold into prostitution by giving them dowries to marry. He was arrested twice, once for slapping someone, which is just kind of funny. He also stayed several soldiers' executions and was even said to have resurrected children who had been, get this, pickled and brined with the intent to sell them off as pork. Number one, ill. Number two, I don't know if those kids would actually come back. In addition to having a couple doubts on that story's validity, I can't help but wonder that if it was true, if the kids always smelled like vinegar or not. Also, I wonder if it was bad for their pH balance and gut health or good for it. Maybe that's kind of morbid and maybe that's just me. Maybe I should stop drinking so much wine, but I don't think so. It's a lot of vinegar. At any rate, when St. Nicholas's parents passed away, they left him a considerable fortune, which he then redistributed to the poor. He enjoyed doing this so much that he started leaving coins in the shoes of children that had been left out. This became known as his feast day on December 6th. I used to live in Germany, and I remember December 6th, we would leave out our shoes and they would get filled with fruits and nuts. Can't say I ever saw a gold coin, but it was a lot of fun. Nicholas was venerated to sainthood when he was on a pilgrimage and at one point calmed a rising storm of seas around them. Sorry, Josecki's guy. Saint Nicholas is officially the most interesting man in the world and he gives killer presents too. 
So that's some pretty interesting historical facts on um, not only the origination of Christmas, but also how we celebrate it. So I hope that you guys enjoyed those facts as much as I enjoyed researching them. Then again, I always enjoy researching historical facts. So now I'm going to give you guys some great suggestions for reads for this holiday season because the best thing about the holidays, aside from family and wine and cookies and presents and all the wonderful sparkling decorations, there's a lot of good things, but also is the time off. So if you have some time off and you're looking to fill it with books, I have some wonderful suggestions for you. So I've been on a thriller binge lately. I would like to blame Lori Ann Bailey for this. <laughs> she had recommended The Good Daughter on her Hanukkah episode a fortnight ago. Yes, I just said fortnight again. So I had to listen to The Good Daughter, which it turns out that it was actually in my Audible library. I'd already purchased it at one point. <laughs> But apparently it got lost in my to be listened to pile and I never got a chance to listen to it. So I'm so glad that she mentioned it. I resurrected it from the depths of my to be listened to pile. And I think I tore through it in about like two days. It was so good. Disturbing, but so, so good. So I've been listening to thrillers ever since. And the next book that I listened to was equally as gripping. This book was called, and I'm actually, I've read three more since... But this was the next one, so I figured I already had my notes up, so that's why I'm talking about this one. But it's really, really good. And um, I listened to the book, obviously, and I liked the narrator as well. So this is called Behind Closed Doors by B.A. Paris, and it was narrated by Georgia McGuire. Everyone knows a couple like Jack and Grace. He has looks and wealth. She has charm and elegance. He's a dedicated attorney who has never lost a case. She is a flawless homemaker, a masterful gardener and cook, and dotes on her disabled younger sister. Though they are still newlyweds, they seem to have it all. You may not want to like them, but you do. You're hopelessly charmed by the ease and comfort of their home, by the graciousness of dinner parties they throw. You'd like to get to know Grace better, but it's difficult because you realize Jack and Grace are inseparable. Some might call this true love. Others might wonder why Grace never answers the phone or why she can never meet for coffee even though she doesn't work. How can she cook such elaborate meals but remain so slim? Or why she never seems to take anything with her when she leaves the house, not even a pen? Or why there are such high security metal shutters on all the downstairs windows? Some might wonder what's really going on after the dinner party is over and the front door has closed. Man, I just have to say this was really so, so good. There were a couple of moments where I was like, oh my God, you're killing me. Like just say something or do something. But even then, I mean, it was well justified, but it was it was so good. Like I like could not stop listening. I absolutely recommend it. And now my book recommendation, which is my own personal book, is my Harlequin historical debut that I just recently released, which is called How to Tempt a Duke. I'd also like to note that I just turned in my manuscript for the next book. Yay! Because that deadline was stressing me out. And that book is the follow-up book to How to Tempt a Duke. And that one is called How to Start a Scandal. And I love that title. So I'm going to drink to that. So the funny thing I've learned about publishing with Harlequin Historical is that there are actually three release dates. There's a mass market print date, a print book date, and an ebook release date. So I can say that now officially all three releases have completely gone off without a hitch and they are all available in any way that you would like to purchase it. And so without further ado, here is the blurb. A Lady's Lessons in Temptation. When her almost fiance proposes to someone else, Lady Eleanor is suddenly the talk of the town. With her family in financial dire straits, Eleanor must marry before the end of the season. Secret Lessons with Charles, the dashing, infuriating, and devastatingly charming Duke of Somersville, should help Eleanor shake off her shameful Ice Queen moniker. 
but how can she tempt a prospective husband when it's the Duke who ignites her desire? And for those of you who read it and are wondering, yes, I am planning on writing Lottie and Evander's story. That is not how to start a scandal. That one is actually about her cousin Violet, who is the Lady Observer. But I have Lottie and Evander's story all plotted out in my head, and oh my gosh, it's so heartbreaking and emotional and beautiful, and I just can't wait to write it and share it with everybody. I'm so, so, so excited. So, do you have any questions for us? You can drop us a line with any of those, or once again, you can share your holiday traditions with us as well at historybooksandwine at gmail.com. We do love to hear from our listeners. Also, please do check out our website at historybooksandwine.buzzsprout.com to hear our podcast and read through the show notes, including links to the books that I've talked about today. We can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Google, and on Alexa. Simply say, Alexa, play podcast History Books and Wine. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you've enjoyed our show, we'd love it if you would consider please leaving us a review. New episodes are posted every other Thursday, hashtag Fortnite, with upcoming shows including January 2nd with Eliza Knight discussing Hogmanay. Then on January 16th, you get all of us for a happy hour where we talk about New Year's traditions in history and around the world, as well as sharing our own resolutions and goals for 2020. Bring your goals and join us with a glass of something alcoholic and sparkling. Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful evening.